We are continuing with the study of Charles Welch's booklet titled John and the Mystery, or the uh, the alternate title known as the Relative Callings of John's Gospel and the Epistle to the Ephesians. So tonight is the third and final part of that study. Let's, uh, let's open in prayer. Our most gracious God and Father, thank you for the word of truth that you've given us. Help us to never take for granted blessing it is to freely open your word and to be able to know the hope of our calling. We thank you for the freedom we have as citizens in this country. Father, we pray for the current election and ask that whatever the outcome, we will be able to live a quiet and calm life. We thank you for this ministry that brings us together where we can share fellowship and learn from brethren who rightly divide the scriptures. Amen. So just a quick review of what we discussed last time. Charles Welch was accused by one of his contemporaries of what the critic referred to as, quote, breaking up Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. The critic believed that all Christians are members of Christ's body and disagreed with Welch's position that while every Christian has resurrection life, not every Christian is part of the body. The two verses mentioned the accusation against Charles Welch were Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy, on account of his great love with which he loved us, made us, being dead to transgressions, alive together with Christ, you have been saved by grace, and raised us together and seated us together in the upper heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And the other verse that uh, he was comparing it to is John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, which read, To be sure, Jesus performed many other signs too in the presence of his disciples, which have not been written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life through his name. So the distinction here is that John 20 applies to every person who is trusted in Christ for his or her salvation. All who believe in Christ have been given resurrection life. But Ephesians 2 is only referring to those in the body, which again, according to Welch, is not every Christian. Uh, we ran through a quick overview of the purposes of the four Gospels. We talked about how Matthew shows Christ as king of Israel, who will rule when he sets up his kingdom. And uh, we see the genealogy through David back to Abraham to confirm his right to the throne. Uh, we looked at Mark, showing that Mark, is, Mark shows Christ as servant, so there's no genealogy needed there for a servant. Uh, Luke shows Christ as man, and we see this second genealogy going back to Adam. And then we come to John's Gospel, and John's Gospel shows Christ as God, the Creator, Redeemer, Lord, the Word made flesh. And while the other three Gospels are addressed to God's people Israel, John is addressed to the world, both Gentile and Jew. And as we've already read a moment ago, and it's on the screen here, John's Gospel was written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life through his name. Every believer who is trusted in Christ as their only Savior is guaranteed resurrection life. There is nothing that can take it away. This is a free gift that no one can lose. Uh, so we also talked about John was the only New Testament writer to speak of the marriage of the Lamb, the marriage supper of the Lamb, <clears throat> excuse me, and those who as guests were invited to this marriage. If we turn to Revelation 19, verses 7 through 9, It reads, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, 
because the marriage feast of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And she was granted to put on shining and pure fine linen, for fine linen stands for the righteous observances of the saints. And he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who have been invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. So the question we've been investigating is who are these guests? The bridegroom is our Lord. The bride is Israel. We were chosen before the overthrow of the world. According to Ephesians 2.6, he raised us together and seated us together in the upper heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So it seems unlikely that we would be the guests. So who does that leave unaccounted for? Not unbelievers, certainly. Well, Mr. Welch believed that these guests are those believers who did not try the things that differ, according to Philippians 1.10, who did not rightly divide the word of truth, according to 2 Timothy 2.15. In other words, the believers who did not accept the teaching of the mystery as taught by Paul the prisoner. And as we mentioned, this accounts for the majority of Christians today and probably then as well. Uh, we remember Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.15 when he wrote, You know this, that all those in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. And also in 2 Timothy 4.10, For Demas has left me, having loved the present age, and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Dang it, I, I would point to you, they... They didn't abandon Christ, but they abandoned Paul. And we see that really today. You try to present the mystery to somebody, and it doesn't always, well, rarely does it seem to go particularly well that it's accepted. But um, We also compared the one flock of John 10.16 to the one new man of Ephesians 2.15. And we showed how these are distinctly different groups, and therefore cannot be referring to the same people. John 10.16 reads this way. I have other sheep too, which are not of this fold, and I must leave those too, and they will hear my voice, and there will be this, one flock, one shepherd. Israel are the sheep, Christ is the good shepherd, and the other sheep are the grafted-in Gentiles of the Acts period, starting with Cornelius in Acts 10. So we know that the one new man, the mystery, was hid in God, and revealed to the Apostle Paul. It's not prophesied anywhere in the Old Testament, nor is it taught in the Gospels or the letters written during the Acts period. Therefore, the one flock mentioned by the Lord, whose earthly ministry was to Israel, as we've already seen, cannot be the same as the one new man. Let's look again at the economy under which the one flock existed during the Acts period to confirm that it's different from the one new man. They were waiting on Christ's return to establish the promised kingdom to Israel. Jews had to be baptized to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gave believers supernatural powers of languages, healing, raising the dead, etc. Israel was still first. Gentiles were only grafted into the blessings and promises of Abraham to make Israel jealous. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, only went to Gentiles after Israel rejected the message. Jews were still keeping the law, albeit apart without the sacrifice for sin. Believing Gentiles were required to comply with the four, quote, necessary things 
that are already part of the Mosaic Law, found in Leviticus 17, regarding, quote, foreigners who dwell in their midst. There, of course, being Israel, foreigners who dwell in Israel's midst. Paul confirmed that he never told anyone, certainly he hadn't told any Jewish person, that the law had now been made optional, and he also confirmed that he himself kept the law. Paul and the Twelve only teach what is written in the Law and the Prophets. The hope of Israel was in view. And lastly, the Book of Romans, which is most likely the last book written during that Acts period, confirms that God had not yet put Israel aside at that time. So while all these characteristics apply to the one flock, none of these characteristics are true of the one body, the Church of the Mystery. Uh, we also discussed uh, three hopes. We discussed that the children of Israel have an earthly calling to inherit the land as promised, uh, but there's the heavenly calling of the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, which is an even better reward for those who seek it by faith. And then we discussed our hope, which is being seated with Christ in heavenly places far above all the heavens. Uh, we discussed the distinction between children and sons. There's a difference between being a child in the family and being the firstborn son and heir. John's gospel addresses God's children. Paul's prison epistles address God's sons who are heirs. And lastly, we discussed whether two dispensations can run together. And if we think of a dispensation as more of a stewardship instead of a specific period of time that can be marked out on a calendar, then I think we can conclude that we've already seen two dispensations running together. In the Old Testament, Jews were given the law at Mount Sinai. Gentiles were not. Gentiles weren't under the law. Uh, even in the New Testament, we see that Paul was entrusted with the gospel of the uncircumcision and Peter with that of the circumcision. So it's different stewardships, but it is happening at the same time. Anyway, tonight, after that lengthy summary, we'll get to our, our last portion of the, the booklet, uh, Welch's booklet. So Welch continued on by quoting 1 Thessalonians 1.4, which reads, Knowing, brothers, you who are loved, your election. So this is talking about knowing their election. Well, how could Paul say that he knows their election? Paul doesn't know the mind of God. Paul doesn't have any insight that hasn't been given into the Lord, by the Lord. So how would he know their election? Well, we're going to provide some context, starting at verse 3 of the same chapter. So it's 1 Thessalonians 4, and we're going to read from 3 through 7. As we continually remember your work of faith and labor of love and patience for the hope of our Lord Jesus Christ before God, our, our God and Father, knowing, brothers, you who are loved by God, your election, because our gospel did not come to you in word alone, but rather in power and in Holy Spirit, and with much conviction, knowing as you do what kind of people we were among you for your sakes, then you became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in great tribulation with joy derived from Holy Spirit, the result being that you became examples to all those in Macedonia and Acacia who believe. Paul knew them personally. He knew their lives, their testimonies, if you will. He, he knew their doctrine. Well, the comparison is being made to Christians in this present age who reject the mystery. For those who reject the mystery, and some are quite hostile to it, uh, we know their election is not ours. Uh, 
In the opening tonight, I gave greetings from the Isle of Patmos in North Carolina, and that, of course, the proper reference is uh, John being in exile when he wrote Revelation. I adopted that little moniker after uh, Michael Garstang, the minister at the chapel of the open book, jokingly referred to my being put under discipline at our local church as my being exiled to Patmos. So we laughed about that. I thought it was quite funny. And henceforth, I have adopted the reference. If I had a blog, I'd probably call it you know, pontifications from Patmos or something ridiculous like that. But the point is that the leaders of the local church where my family was in fellowship were recently made aware of the mystery by me. And I say recently because they've known for the last 10 years that I don't participate in the Lord's Supper and that my children aren't baptized. But it's only after I put it in writing again recently that they seem to pay attention. Upon reading the notes that I sent them, they initially put me under discipline. I mentioned this, I think, the last time I taught here. They put me under discipline for teaching the mystery here at the Mysterian Truth Bible Study. They have since changed their position uh, slightly, and I am officially under discipline because of doctrine, regardless of whether I teach it. Their response is to declare the doctrine to be wicked sin, and therefore I must be put under discipline. I was removed uh, from not only leading worship songs, I've been barred from even playing on the worship team, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and not only that, the worst part, really, is that my children, who also played music with me, and one of them runs sound at the church, will no longer be allowed to serve because of the doctrine. And I'd also like to point out that the three men who made this declaration about me and my family, they and their family have been dear friends of ours for over eight years now. So please forgive my long-winded aside, but I present it to you simply as an example and a reminder. I'm sure you guys have your own stories too, but that right division is divisive. And Okay, that's pun intended, forgive me, but you know, the only reason my friends have turned against me is because I hold to right division. Uh, moving on, Mr. Welch countered his... Uh, critics' accusation of Gnosticism. So he was also accused saying that, oh, if you teach that only a select few are part of the body, then you're guilty of Gnosticism. It's a special revelation. You know, that comes, I'm, you may have heard that said about you guys as well. Anyway, he countered that accusation with the idea of faithfulness. If you look at Ephesians 1, verse 1, it reads, from Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, through the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, and the faithful in Christ Jesus. And Colossians 1-2 reads very similarly, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord, Jesus Christ. Paul twice qualifies the word saints with the words and faithful. So this indicates a distinction between those who are saints and those who are faithful saints. Faithfulness is the responsibility of every believer in Christ. Righteousness was imputed to us by God, but faithfulness was not. If we turn to Colossians chapter 2, start reading in verse 2. And I want their hearts to be comforted, united in love, and to be leading to all the richness of the full assurance which comes with understanding, leading on to acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, 
in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. Going back to Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and acknowledgement of him, and give you eyes of your heart which have been enlightened, so that you may know what the hope of his calling is, and what the wealth of the glory of his inheritance in holy places is. Paul explains in these verses that there is something beyond salvation in Christ that is not part of the free gift of life given to all who trust in Christ. Again, life through Christ's name is the first step. It is the prerequisite. But there is more for those who will trust in the mystery that was hidden from ages in God revealed to Paul the prisoner. Paul's prayer in Ephesians that we just read is that his readers would know the hope of the Lord's calling for them, the glory of his inheritance in holy places. And I think that's our prayer as well. We tell people of this wonderful hope, and we pray that by faith they will embrace it. Going back for a moment to my little exile on the proverbial Patmos, you know, I may not like the consequences of my sharing the mystery with the leaders at our local church. Um, in fact, I don't like it. I'm you know, still kind of ticked about it. But I can rejoice in the fact, I'm trying to rejoice, believe me, I can rejoice in the fact that I've shared it with them. It's not up to me to force them to believe, and I'm available if they have any questions. But if nothing else, they were quite clearly shown the mystery. If they continue to reject the blessing, that's their choice. Um, I think we can make a comparison, and I may have made this comparison last time, I don't remember, but uh, believing the mystery to what we read about the New Jerusalem. You know, a blessing to those people of Israel who receive it by faith. If we turn to Hebrews chapter 11, and we'll start at verse 13. In faith these all died, not having received the promises, but having seen them from afar, and having embraced them, again, this is by faith, and they confessed that they were foreigners and outsiders on the earth. For those who say such things make it plain that they seek a homeland. And if they had kept thinking back to where they had come out from, they would have had an opportunity to turn back. But as it is, they aspire to a better homeland, that is to say, an upper heavenly one. For that reason, God is not ashamed of them to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Again, life comes through Christ alone and can never be lost. But the Lord rewards those who live faithfully. And just just a quick comment here before we keep going uh, regarding the New Jerusalem being an upper heavenly homeland, in case that's a question anybody has. The New Jerusalem comes down to earth from the upper heavenlies. So while the city itself is heavenly, its destination is the earth. Our hope, by contrast, is to be seated far above the heavens. Our destination is heavenly. So I make the comparison in that... Uh, Israel will inherit the land, but by faith, those who who are faithful, I should say, will inherit the New Jerusalem. There are people today who are trusting in Christ. They have life. But those who reject Paul aren't going to be part of the body. I don't, know if they'll, I don't believe they'll be seated far above the heavenlies. So it's a similar comparison. It's not exactly the same, but I think, I think we can make that comparison. But... Um, Anyway, neither we were discussing Gnosticism and the, the special revelation. I don't think that's it at all. Uh, you know, neither Paul nor Mr. Welch 
are teaching Gnosticism. No one here is teaching Gnosticism. The knowledge we're referring to comes from knowing the scriptures and being faithful to accept and believe in the truths given, us to, by, given to us by the Apostle Paul. It's not complicated. But, you know, oh, that we would be able to say at the end of our lives, as Paul did in 2 Timothy 4, and I think I even sent that on to, to Chip and Tony, but uh, you, you, I'm, you're very familiar with it, I know. But 2 Timothy 4, starting at verse 7, I have fought the good fight, I have completed my course, I have kept the faith. Finally, there is a crown of righteousness laid up for me, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. And I pray that that is the testimony. I pray that it's my testimony now, which I see that I fall so far short of that. But I pray that that's my testimony when I'm about to depart this life. The final part of Welch's booklet is to discuss the eight signs from John's Gospel. Uh, so we're going to return again to John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. This is our reminder, get our, get our setting. To be sure, Jesus performed many other signs too in the presence of his disciples, which have not been written in this book. But these eight signs have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life through his name. His name. His name. Ugh, it's been a long day, sorry. You may have life through his name. So what is the purpose of these eight signs? So that those reading John's gospel may have life through his name. It's, I mean, I, I know I've said it multiple times. I'm hoping if anybody's jumped into this room that doesn't normally come, I hope that that, if you haven't heard it, I hope that means something to you because it's, it's an eternal truth. Um, but we're going to briefly look at the eight signs as we, as we wrap up here. The first sign is the marriage in Cana from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. We're not going to read all of the, um, each the entirety of each passage. I'm just going to uh, spot check a few verses. But you'll remember that the Lord, his disciples, and Mary were all attending this wedding, and uh, the wine ran out. So starting in verse 8 of John chapter 2, Then he said to them, Draw some off now and bring it to the catering steward. So they brought it. But when the catering steward had tasted the water, which had become wine, and then we skip to verse 11 and see the response, Jesus performed this first sign, the first of these signs in Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The second sign is the ruler's son, and that takes place in John chapter 4, verses 46 through 54. A royal official's son was dying in Capernaum, and we'll start at verse 49 of John chapter 4. The royal official said to him, Lord, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son will live. And the man the words which Jesus had said to him, and he went his way. And while he was still going down, his servants met him and gave him a report and said, Your child is alive. And skipping to verse 53, it reads, So the father knew that it was at the very hour at which Jesus said to him, Your son will live. And he and his whole house believed. Now, in Appendix 176 of the Companion Bible, Mr. Billinger groups these two signs together as occurring during the first period of the Lord's ministry, which was the proclamation of the kingdom. So we're going to move on to the third sign from John chapter 5, 
verses 1 through 16. And this is the, uh, the impotent man. It takes place at the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. And a man had been suffering from a physical condition for the last 38 years. We'll start at uh, John chapter 5. We'll start at verse 7. The infirm man replied to him, Sir, I do not have anyone to put me in the pool when the water is disturbed. By the time I go, someone else goes down in before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your stretcher, and walk. And immediately the man was cured, and he picked up his stretcher and walked. Skipping down to verse 24, it reads, Truly, truly, I say to you that he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has age-abiding life and will not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Okay, we'll move to John chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. This is a feeding of the 5,000. So the Lord was speaking to a crowd of 5,000 men who followed him because they saw the healings he performed. And the question arose of how would the disciples feed such a large number of people with only five barley loaves and two cooked fish. So starting in verse 11, John chapter 6, And Jesus took the loaves and gave thanks and distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples distributed them to those reclining. And they did the same with the cooked fish, as much as they wanted. And jumping down to verse 14, Then when the men had seen the sign which Jesus had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who was to come into the world. Move on to the fifth sign, which is walking on the sea. That's John chapter 6, same chapter obviously, but uh, starting in verse 15 through 21. And that's the the same evening that the 5,000 were fed, the disciples were sailing on the sea towards Capernaum, and the Lord was not in the boat with them. So starting in verse 19 of John chapter 6. Then when they had rowed about 25 or 30 stades, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near to the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, I am. Do not be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat. Uh, going back to the Companion Bible, Mr. Billinger groups these three signs together as occurring during the second period of the Lord's ministry, which was the manifestation of himself as uh, Jehovah Raphica. I'm going to get these names wrong, forgive me. These pronunciations wrong. Jehovah Raphica, the healer of his people. Jehovah Roy and Jehovah Jireh, the supplier of all his people's needs. And Jehovah, the creator of heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. Moving on to... Sign number six will be John chapter nine. It's the man born blind, and uh, this is in verses one through fourteen. And as the sort of subheading I just gave you said, it's, the Lord encounters a man who had been blind since birth. John chapter nine, and we'll start at verse six. When he has said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay from the spittle and smeared the clay on the eyes of the blind man. And he said to him, Go and wash yourself in the pool of Siloam, which translated is sent. So he went away and washed himself and came back sighted. Skipping down to 36, uh, he answered and said, So who is that, Lord, so that I may believe in him? Then Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and also he who is talking to you is the one. Then Jesus said, I'm sorry, then he said, I believe, Lord, and he worshipped him. Uh, seventh sign is the story of Lazarus 
from John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. Lazarus was dying, and his sisters Mary and Martha sent word to the Lord to come. By the time the Lord arrived, Lazarus had already died and had been in the tomb for four days. So we'll start at uh, verse 43 of John 11. And when he had said these things, he called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And he who had died came out, bound at the legs and the hands with swathing. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen what Jesus had done believed in him. So Mr. Bullinger groups these two signs together as occurring during the third period of the Lord's ministry, which was the period of his rejection. Bullinger writes, and I'll quote, Manifesting in the enormity of their sin, in the rejection of him who is the restorer of his people's sight, and the Lord, the giver of life, both were parabolic and prophetic with reference to his rejection. So for the eighth sign, we're going to move all the way to the last chapter of John. Uh, John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. And uh, we're just going to read verses 6 and 7. Then he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find some. Because the disciples had gone fishing and didn't catch anything. So he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and they could no longer haul it up because of the large number of fish. Then that disciple whom Jesus loved, John, author of our gospel here, said to Peter, it is the Lord. So these are the eight signs in John's gospel. Now, an interesting point in full disclosure is that John chapter 20 obviously comes before John chapter 21. And so really only seven signs have been recorded once you get to John chapter 20. But we also know all the events of John had already taken place before it was written. Right? He had to write, he had to have the complete story before he wrote it down. And the passage does mention that there are more that were not written in the book. So I don't think we should be too bothered that one or more, or that one more, excuse me, was added, uh, before the close of John's Gospel account. Any road, in conclusion of this study, a couple things we, a few things that we can confirm. We learned that the phrases made alive together, raised us together, and seated us together are only found in the prison epistles and nowhere else in the scriptures, including John's Gospel, indicating these promises may not be for everyone. We learn that John refers to his readers as children, whereas Paul refers to them as sons who will receive an inheritance. The one flock of John 10.16 is not the same as the one new man of Ephesians 2.15. Two dispensations can be active at the same time, as we see during the Old Testament, we have the Mosaic Law, only applied to Israel, not to Gentiles. And finally, every true Christian has the free gift of resurrection life through Christ, but not every Christian believes the mystery. Similarly to how the New Jerusalem is a reward for the faithful of Israel, I do believe the mystery is a reward to those who are faithful in believing the message of Paul the prisoner. Which leaves the, quote, guests at the wedding. They can't be Israel. They can't be unbelievers. It can't be the body. So all that remains in my mind and obviously this is what Mr. Walsh is saying through this entire booklet, is that these guests are those saints, those believers, who reject the mystery taught by Paul the prisoner. So that's our study, and uh, we'll close in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for all your blessings. Father, if any error has been presented this evening, I pray you will make it known and correct it for all our benefit. Help us to walk closer with you each day we've been given. Help us to teach others the truth of your word and help us to never bring shame to you.
Amen.